Student motivation is enhanced when students see that the work they're doing in their classes is relevant to their future careers. In this episode, we examine how industry realistic projects may be used to enhance learning in software engineering classes. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Today, our guest is Dr. Bastian Tenbergen, an assistant professor of computer science at the State University of New York at Oswego. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Today, our teas are? Well, upon John's recommendation, I'm having the mint herbal mix tea, which is excellent. I'm a peppermint tea drinker, so this is blowing my mind right now. Excellent. I'm having ginger tea. I'm having Prince of Wales today. I like your ginger tea. That's my favorite tea. It's good. I've never had a third ginger tea. Ginger and fennel and peppermint. Those are my three. I love those most of the time. We invited you here to talk a bit about the projects that you have students do in your computer science classes. What classes do you generally teach? I'm teaching in the computer science department, but I'm mostly teaching software engineering courses. We actually have two separate majors. We have computer science majors, Bachelor of Arts and Bachelor of Science, and we also have a software engineering Bachelor of Science program. People usually confuse software engineering and computer science, or at the very least don't really know where the differentiation is. And in contrast to computer science, where it's really all about programming and all about finding optimal algorithms to solve problem X for person Y, software engineering is concerned with the process of development from A to Z. So from requirements all the way to programming, which is a small part of it, all the way to quality assurance and also budgeting, also the business aspect of it. So it has a wider focus. It's a little more client-facing? Very much client-facing, yes. No, I'm by trade, I'm a requirements engineer, you can say, and a very smart person who very recently submitted his PhD dissertation, which I'm very proud of him that he finally did that. He once defined requirements engineering as a socio-technical process that implements the vision of a system given the time and budget constraints that you have. They usually also call this the context of the system, the developmental context of a system. It's the budget, the time, the resources you have, and such things. So those are considerations during software engineering. In what classes do you have students engage in projects? Well, it is very hard to teach computer science without actually using projects. You can teach the skills, but at some point, the art of making software becomes more than the alignment of skills in a particular way. Legitimately, almost all classes we teach have a very heavy focus on projects. I'm teaching a software and safety requirements engineering course, which is project-based. At least a quarter to half of the students' grades depends on the project. I'm also teaching a software quality assurance class where at least a quarter, sometimes half of the grade depends on project performance. I'm also teaching occasionally capstone courses where the capstone experience in the software engineering program really tries to simulate how an independent developer develops bespoke software for one individual client. And one of my favorite things to teach is a class called software design. The term design sort of implies software architecture, but it's not just that. So those software engineers of you out there listening, this particular course is called that for historic reasons, but it's really a design process class. 
the entire class, collaborates together on producing one substantial piece of software, which is usually in the first day of class, I demand, sort of like big evil Papa Smurf, I demand that this project could be marketable. So the explicit goal is we want to market it, which sometimes works, sometimes doesn't, but that's the goal. And then we differentiate the students into teams and have a database team. You have a GUI team. We have graduate students at our university that specifically focus on usability and human factors. So we have those in the team. We have requirements teams. We have quality assurance teams, and they have to learn not only how to work together, they also have to learn how to apply their skills, right? They have to learn how to best make design decisions, how to communicate them, and not only how to communicate them with like-minded peers that are also scientifically or engineering capable, but also with stakeholder. So software engineering in general is very focused on the people who are giving the money for a project. In my classes, I really focus on the fact that students should be able to argue their rationales, not to other engineers, not to other technicians, but to their grandmother. Because if you can explain it to your grandma, you can explain it to the person who gives you money in the project. And that usually worked pretty well. How early in the term do students decide on the project? So it depends. It depends on the course. In my requirements engineering and software quality assurance class, where we also teach skills, you also teach requirements elicitation, or you teach, let's say, data flow-based testing, which is a new technique for them to pick up. There, I usually pick the projects for them, or they, if they have a particular good idea, we'll discuss it. But usually it's in the first week or so that they finalize the project. In capstone classes and in the software design process class, I usually conceive the project ideas. And then we make the necessary choices, let's say the necessary preliminary choices in the first week. What I mean by necessary and preliminary choices, it's this. I basically say, okay, I want a universal all-trans functionator, and no one has any clue what that is. And I say, great, it's your job to ask the stakeholder, who is also me, what I mean by that. And then the requirements team, we differentiate the people into teams, and then the people who self-select into requirements, they say, okay, well, Bastian, what did you mean by that? And, well, I meant really, whatever, a cow milking device. And so the project kind of takes shape. So I force them to come up with the requirements and to get them out of me. So I, as an instructor, I basically have a dual role, or actually triple role, sometimes quadruple role. Right? I'm project manager for them. I'm also the stakeholder. I'm also the person who gives them advice and the instructor that says, you, you shouldn't do this because X and Y and Z or whatever. Or maybe here's a great idea that someone else just had and maybe try this. More often than not, I'm also the conflict solver and the psychologist that lets them cry on the shoulder because at some point during the semester, everyone is just frustrated. It's just the part of the experience, I guess. But that's why I usually tell my students the trick is to be successful despite other humans. And once that idea clicks, working together never becomes a problem ever again. So it's usually it's one conflict earlier in the semester and then it kind of dissolves. And this is when you see when the students go from student to professional. It's my favorite class to teach because you can see how the student go from, Professor, how do you want this? To, well, Bastian, I know you said you want a cow milking device, but see, we don't have any cows. So how about we build you this instead? It's important in these kinds of projects for them to be able to communicate what the stakeholder wanted versus what we can conceivably give to the stakeholder, given the time and the budget and the people that we have on staff. Or what the stakeholder may actually need and doesn't oh, realize that they that's need. That's right. 
two years ago, I co-taught this class for the first time, which was great, because then we could literally play good cop, bad cop. One stakeholder, one instructor would always be against the ideas, which, believe it or not, was not necessarily me. And the other one was always in favor and would always say, oh, yes, that's fine, that's fine, keep going. But, you know, even if you have someone who constantly approves of what you do, you don't know whether or not you're actually making any good progress. So it, it may feel good to have your ego stroked and be told that, yes, everything is great, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're making useful progress. Really, in the end, the only way you learn is if you make mistakes. On the other hand, of course, being told everything is bad or everything is completely horrible and how dare you even propose this doesn't help either. So the truth is somewhere in the middle and it's for the students to find out what goes. And that's the tricky part about teaching this kind of class is to guide the knowledge discovery process such that they find it, but they can still be successful despite having to do all the work themselves, really. So you're describing mostly the setup for your software design class, mm -hmm. right? Which I is a big team, right? Yeah. That has small teams on it, but you're all working on the same project. Yes. Are your other projects and your other classes also set up so that everyone's working on the same project or individuals working on a project? How are the setups similar or different? You have teams of students. So I have a very much focus on that, that students work at least together with one other person. And the reason is four eyes see more than two eyes. That's why. Plus, I encourage them like, hey, you know, if you talk to another person, if you vocalize your problems, it helps, it stimulates your thinking. So that's why I do this. For example, in my requirements class, I give the general theme of the project and then let the students do some of it on their own. For example, a little while ago, when I taught this software and safety requirements class first here in the US, I gave the students the opportunity to, I said, okay, we have these cyber physical rovers or robots. Never mind what cyber physical systems are, but it's a buzzword and they can do certain things. Something makes them special. We discussed this in class and I said, we have these robots. I want you to do something cool with them. They each have individual functionalities. Pick one for different sensors. Different robots had different sensors. Pick one and do something fun with it. And they pitched the project idea. For example, one of them said, I want my robot to exit a maze. Great idea. Do it. Another person said, I want my robot to use the camera and use computer vision to recognize another robot and drive after him. And that was a cool project. Another team of, I think it was three students actually, said, now we don't like the robots, we'd much rather do something else. And here's an idea. And I said, okay. As soon as the learning objectives that I have to find in my syllabus are roughly aligned, uh, let them go. My general philosophy is, if the student has a better idea than me and can argue it, okay because I want to learn something too, right? <laughs> so I let them do it and let them explore it if they have the idea, right? The students would have more ownership too when they come up with the idea. True. Usually, I'm not sure if it's me or if it's the projects or if it's just those cute little robots that we have, but usually students are quite enthusiastic about the projects. For the coming semester, believe it or not, we bought programmable slot cars. Remember those slot cars that you used to race on the like little tracks? You had a little controller in your hand, you can push more and less gas and throttle. Um, we bought programmable ones, and we're going to be using that in the project. I'm super excited about this. I can't wait to play with that. I'm hoping students will be excited about this too. And if they're not, then fine. They're not expensive. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, we have several other faculty in our department who are quite excited about these. I'm not going to tell you the name of the manufacturer, but they have a very cool API, which is an application programmer interface, which is really simple and open. I haven't tried them out yet, so I'm hoping that that's a neat little platform to do automotive software engineering type projects, which would be cool.
So as your students are working in teams Mm -hmm. and you're trying to make sure that they're prepared for professional life, right? You've talked a little bit about thinking about clients and things like that. How do you make sure that the problem that they're solving is realistic and it's not pared down so much (laughs) that it's unrealistic? Sometimes when students self-define a project, it's in a context that wouldn't generally exist when they are working on their own unless they're at a startup. That is so true. I would argue that finding the project not necessarily the scope, but the project domain is probably one of the two hardest things about doing the project. In fact, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this and make some advertisement on my own behalf here, but colleagues of mine and I wrote two academic papers and we've just submitted the third one on project-based learning in industry-realistic case examples in software engineering to a fairly substantial, fairly high-ranking conference. The industry-realistic examples, they usually reflect one or two aspects that you would commonly find in, let's say, industrial development projects. For example, the problem of, let's say, sensor integration. You have a little robot, and you tell the robot to rotate 90 degrees. You can't know whether or not that thing actually turned 90 degrees. Because the one motor, if you have two wheels, assuming you have a two-wheeled robot, one motor might be have different manufacturing tolerances and maybe a little bit stronger than the other one. So you maybe turned 89 degrees, maybe you turned 94 degrees. So how do you fix that? Well, you could put a little sensor on it that does that, but the only rotational sensors you have, they are going to be inaccurate too. Especially if you have, let's say, have the robot run on carpet rather than tile. All of a sudden, the physical setting that the robot is in has a great impact on the software that you're developing. And that is an industry-realistic problem. Let's say you fly an autonomous aerial vehicle somewhere and try to detect wildfires, which we are currently experiencing in very hot summer with a lot of drought. So they do this. They use drones to detect wildfires. How do you know you're actually currently flying through smoke as opposed to through humidity or through fog or through a regular cloud? You have to use sensors. It's a realistic problem. So the domain flying an actual drone is hard. So we use a little robot, which, however, has the same kind of problems. I was very fortunate that earlier in life, I was working with some industrial companies and research projects. And so it's relatively easy for me to figure out what could be a challenge that a software developer or software engineer is going to be facing. So in those two papers that I just described, we focused on how to apply industry-realistic case examples. And we figured out what kind of properties these have. For example, you want to be sure that the project that you give to your students doesn't have a bunch of challenges, but just one is usually enough just to focus on one little challenge. For example, get the little robot to rotate accurately, but you don't tell them, make a project that lets the robot rotate because that's boring. Instead, you say, hey, why don't you write an overtaking algorithm for robots? And usually you know full well that in order to make those robots actually overtake one another like cars on a highway, a lot of things have to fall into place. First, for example, you have to figure out how to make this robot drive straight. And that is already a project in and out of itself. So the other important criterion for these industry realistic projects is to have the project scalable. Towards the end of the semester, I usually joke with my students and say, well, if you can't finish your project in time, it's either because you didn't scope the requirements right, or because you bit off more you can chew, development is harder than you initially thought, or maybe because we haven't redefined success yet. So if you can't be successful, redefine success. Which, and when I say that, really what I mean is I tell them, listen, 
you can't deliver what you wanted to deliver, fine, not a problem, happens all the time in reality. Instead, tell me what we can expect. Given the time that's left, what can we expect? Well, we can actually make the robot overtake, they will say, but we can make it drive straight with a certain level of accuracy. And that seems boring and uninteresting when I say it like this, but it's actually a remarkable feat. At the end of the semester, there's two kinds of students, those that are happy to be done because this was horrible experience, the minority, thankfully, or you have the people that say, oh my God, I had no idea how hard it actually is to interface hardware and software. It's really a big lesson in scoping, right? It, it's like, how do you break a big project into small pieces absolutely. and understand that small pieces have to be completed before you can put them together to make a big piece? It's like modular design. Yeah, absolutely. Like modular design is one of those keyword buzzwords almost from the 90s, but they were right. You divide and conquer is a recurring theme in computer science. It works everywhere. If you want to sort numbers, you divide and you conquer. It's the fastest way to do it. And if you want to develop a software project, you divide and you conquer. You first build project one, then project two. You can scope this whatever way you want. Very often, actually, I have students who halfway through their project realize the potential that the project has that they're working on and say, hey, Bastian, I really would like to bring this project into this direction instead. I know you said overtake algorithm, but let's do a pathfinding algorithm instead. Esker Dijkstra in the 1960s wrote basically the silver bullet of shortest path algorithms. And can I implement that and put it in the robot? I'm like, sure, why not? Just last semester, I had someone interested in that, doing that. The third characteristic about these projects is don't be a stickler too much for what the industry really experiences and let the student figure it out on their own. On the one hand, you could simulate how companies develop software to particular degrees. You could say, oh, we are all now going to fill out application slips or vacation slips or things like this, right? But that is misleading from the art of developing software. On the other hand, when you tell the student, hey, listen, or when the student asks, hey, listen, I want to bring this in another direction because I find this really interesting, usually what comes out is something really rewarding, in my experience at least. So the third concept is don't overdo it. Students will by themselves, with enough enthusiasm, drive it into a direction that is going to blow your mind, theirs and yours. So when students are working together in teams and they're taking on kind of different roles, yeah. how do you help the students divide those roles, but then also make sure that they're learning all of the skills or techniques that you want them to learn? Yeah, that's hard. It's really, really hard. And I would say that there's no silver bullet of how to do this. It is an unfortunate truth that the larger the project is, the more people are working on the same project, the higher the chance that at least one person is simply left out. And you can be the kind of person that says, okay, let's try to lift this person up to make sure that they learn something. But to be entirely honest, in part, in my opinion, it's a component of the experience to make yourself available to your team. So what I do throughout the semester is encourage students to contribute any way they can. And students misunderstand sometimes from a grading perspective that contributing means being the natural born leader. In my experience, every team, no matter what, has one or maybe two people who are really great at the technology and also really great with people and therefore naturally adopt the role of the leader. Assigning a leader doesn't really work all that often. You can say, okay, you're a graduate student, so you'll have more management responsibilities. And that usually works. But often there's one non-graduate student who's also fulfilling this managerial role. 
So part of the experience is to find any way you can possibly be helpful for your team. This doesn't necessarily have to be the leader role. You cannot be a leader and be a rather shy, quiet person and still get an A in project-based courses the way I teach them. Simply because, what does an A mean? An A means you're an excellent, outstanding student. And when are you an excellent, outstanding student? Well, in these cases, we're an excellent, outstanding team member for your team. When are you do that? Well, when you contribute stuff any way you can to your team such that your team can continue. I'll give you an example. If you are the kind of person that never volunteers presentations in class, that never contacts me as the instructor with questions, that never has a management important role in the team, but manages all the background communication, implements all the code, and does all the right things, and the team simply couldn't contribute, couldn't do what they're supposed to do if it wasn't for your input, you're an A student, regardless of whether or not you're very outspoken and outgoing or not. On the other hand, if you're a student who talks a lot, and who is volunteering a lot, and who is putting themselves in the limelight a lot, but at the end of the day, your team can't count on you because you didn't show up for the team meeting, or because you um, promised something but never delivered, or because the stuff that you deliver is of poor quality, and your team decides to drop it and not use your work, then you're clearly on the other end of the grading spectrum. So I have a rubric, a rubric system where I say, okay, an A student clearly is the backbone of the team any way possible. A B student is delivering useful stuff in regular intervals. And a C student is, well, useful when being assigned work, right? And a D student is unfortunately not useful even when prompted. And an E student is the kind of student where the team said, listen, we've asked you 15 times. You haven't done a darn thing. We're done with you. And we should know that as we go, for some reason, we use E's instead of F's. Oh, that's right. I'm um, sorry. So a failing student. It doesn't make sense to any of us, but it's been done here for a long time. That's true. So a student that is failing the course with an E or other universities with an F, usually those students know that they are. And usually before they are even assigned a failing grade, I've had numerous conversations with them, not as the manager, not as the stakeholder, but as the Papa Smurf. <laughs> who says, listen, if you want to pass this class, and for software engineering students in our university, this class is a core requirement. So they have to have a passing grade in this class to graduate. I say, listen, right now you're not. We're also doing peer evaluations. So some people could say, well, if you're the one that subjectively evaluates the students, isn't that unfair? And the answer is yes, of course. So I've experimented with this, just evaluations by me, and I had some good experiences with it, and also some very bad ones, unfortunately. So with you know, disputes and happens occasionally. So what I like to do is peer evaluations where students within the same team evaluate other team members on a scale of, say, 25 points. And usually and remarkably, these peer evaluations match my subjective opinion almost all the time, 100%. Students, when they evaluate others, are usually a little positively biased and they are reluctant to evaluate people really badly. But if you ignore that, the subjective evaluations students have of each other are matching my observations very well. How often do they get feedback in terms of how well they're doing? Every day. Every day. We meet, usually in this class, we are meeting three times a week, or, or the university has allotted three meeting times a week. I like to schedule two 
meetings where I'm there and they are reporting to me in daily scrums. Those of you who are software engineers, yes, we're doing agile methodology, specifically scrum. So we do daily scrums, which basically you stand up and you say, this is what we have done from last time until today. This is what we are currently working on. This is what we'll do next. These are the roadblocks. These are possible problems. And these are questions that we have. Five minutes, everyone does it and usually takes the entire class period to figure out problems, to resolve roadblocks. And most of the time it's minor things, but got to get done because it's the planning for the rest. So during that is when I provide feedback by saying, hey, have you done this yet? Or have you thought about that yet? Or John Doe here was supposed to deliver this and that, did they? Or on the other hand, very often we have experience that students say, well, see, our friend Jane Doe here foresaw two weeks ago that this is going to be a problem. So she already did this and that in anticipation. And that's how you know you have a really great student at hand, right, when they can anticipate problems in the future, but which usually only experienced engineers are able to do. So they get feedback every time. What I do, however, is the third class meeting that we have, I usually reserve for project work because that is the one day in the academic schedule for all students in the class, and if you have 30 people in the class, that I know they have time. And especially at the beginning of the semester, I often hear things like, oh, we don't have class on Friday. I'm like, no, 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 you have class. I might not be there. And the reality is that, of course, I'm there. I'm just in the next room, letting them duke it out. And then when the shouting or the crying gets too loud, I walk in. Or they decide on things and they have a question and need it answered right then, right there. So they walk over to the other room or wherever I am and they ask me. Or I just sit quietly in the room and let the students plan the work on their own. So the idea is that the third meeting of the week is usually when they get to make progress when they need other people to be present. We also usually coordinate using online chat functions. We use Discord. It's used in a lot of gaming. As it's, well. Yeah, it's used in gaming a lot, right? Plus, all my students, they're all familiar with it because they're usually all gamers. And we even have a little Steam community going because you're nerds like that. So they coordinate through Discord and sometimes they say, hey, Bastion, is it fine if we don't meet in person because John and Jane are out of town because whatever, wedding or sick or whatever. Is it okay if we do this online? I say, sure, I don't care how you get it done. Just get it done. That's all I care about. I care about you making progress any way you can. Next semester, I'm actually preparing for having this class for the first time in a sort of hybrid fashion. Hybrid in our university means a portion of the course is online, the other portion is a physical in-class meetings. And what I want to experiment with is move this course to an entirely online fashion. Basically simulate how offshore development works. Let's say you have a team working in Atlanta, you have a team that works here in upstate New York, and you have another team in India or Poland or Germany, and they work together. They have to coordinate somehow. So we're going to do this next semester. I'm excited. Really excited for that. Interesting. Will there be a synchronous component where you have everyone report? Absolutely. So the reason why I said hybrid is because we're going to meet exactly twice in person. It's going to be the first class we're going to actually physically meet. And I tell them that from now on, we're not going to meet anymore. Instead, we're going to meet online using an online meeting tool. The university has a couple of licenses and they were friendly enough to allow me to use one. So we're using this tool and we're doing online meetings where everyone has to be present and has to do the same things we would otherwise do if we had physical in-class meetings. 
the daily scrum. This is what I've been working on. This is what I'm going to do next. This is what we as a team have been doing. So we still have the immediate feedback component. We can still plan ahead and we can still do all of this. And the second time we meet will be at the end of the semester when we present the final project and when we show the final implementation to the stakeholder, basically like a sales pitch. And of course, that's going to be problematic because especially the usability folks, those part of the team who are going to be conducting actual usability tests with human subject committee approval and everything. So we do it the actual way that a company does it. They, of course, have to meet. This is for next semester. I'm actually thinking about having them fill out mock travel requests just to get them accustomed to this. So we'll see how this works. I'm quite excited about this prospect. I looked at the class roster the other day, and I think I have a really cool crew of really capable people. I think it's going to be great. What are some challenges that you've run across teaching project-based classes and some advice that maybe you could give to a faculty who's newer to this methodology? I would still consider myself new to this. So I'm actually junior faculty, so I'm only, in quotation marks, an assistant professor at this university for just about three years. But our department usually have more project-involved classes taught by more senior faculty. One of the most significant challenges that I've experienced is when you have disruptive students. Every once in a while, you have a student who completely hates the idea of projects. And frankly, I was one of them when I was in grad school. I was, I was one of them because at the end of grad school, I was like, if I hear the word project one more time, I'm going to flip out. And these days, I'm, I have a different opinion of this. I understand that some people are just fed up with it. And I understand. And especially when they have to work with other people that they don't know, that don't have the same work ethic that they do, they get frustrated a lot. So a recurring problem is student frustration with other students. That's why I joke with them and say, well, this class is not about skill acquisition. I don't need you to know how to compile code. At this point, I expect that you know how to do this. I need you to learn how to be successful despite other people in your group. You need to be successful despite the fact that you're running out of time, that kind of stuff. So it takes a little bit convincing sometimes, but usually you'll find the trick is to find an amicable solution. And then if there's conflict between people, then talk to both sides and say, listen, I'm not your enemy. I'm not here to point fingers. I'm not here to agree with you or disagree with you. I'm here to help you facilitate a compromise. And that is sometimes challenging. It happens every single semester, but it's challenging. And my strategy usually is to listen to both sides and say, okay, maybe you just used the word the wrong words. Maybe you use the wrong language. Maybe there's cultural differences. You have students from other countries and they might not have the same work ethic that you do. They may work 24-7, it feels like, and you really appreciate your weekends off. That is fine. That is a fine thing to do. We just need to be upfront about it. We just say, listen, Jane, I'm not going to work Sunday nights because Sunday nights is when I relax. Or, hey, I'm sorry, Wayne, tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock is the only time we can meet. Can you somehow make it happen? So it's really about compromise and it's a case by case thing. But my strategy is listen to them all. And if they can't make a decision on their own, then I make one and they just have to abide by it. And usually it's not a problem. Which and is also a useful job skill because it, they're right. going to be in these environments. Exactly. Right? In fact, when I say we simulate the way a software company develops software, I'm not joking. We really do it. And the conflicts that you have in a class like this are literally the same. Most students really appreciate the experience. They may hate going through it, but they usually love it at the end. In fact, two years ago, I had a graduate student who was a graduate student of human-computer interaction, of which our university has a master's program. 
But her background, I believe it was art. She came from an art background. Probably a graphic design student. Um, I'm not certain about that, but probably. And the strength of the HCI graduate program is that it has so many people from so many different backgrounds, which is a great asset. And you can draw from really greatly talented people. Unfortunately, the downside is, well, these people... They may have taken exactly one computer science class, namely Introduction to Programming, and they have never done anything with software ever, ever again. But this person, she hated going through this class. She hated every single second of it. But now she's working for a rather renowned company here in upstate New York, and she says, I'm really experiencing this every day of my life, and I'm so thankful we went through this. This is the best, worst class you'll ever take in your entire life. It's not about making students suffer, of course. It is about making them experience something in a realistic fashion and tone it down a little bit. I don't want to be the evil boss. I don't want to be the guy who okays everything. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. And usually that kind of pans out. Another really challenging thing, though, is when you have a disruptive student, not just someone who's fed up with projects or fed up with people in the project, but actually tries to sabotage it. And not too long ago, I had a student who was, let's say, extremely convinced of their own opinion. And this person, they were very sure of their own abilities. And they were very keen on arguing. They would argue everything until you're blue in the face. And they would misinterpret people stopping to argue because they're just fed up with it with, oh, they just conceded. I won the argument. So I had this person actually say, what, everyone is praising me for my great ideas. And I said, well, sure, but you've done these three components that you've developed for this project and your team has used none of them. Your team is no longer inviting you to team meetings on my recommendation because whenever you were at a team meeting, they would not get anything done. So what do you think? What do you think this is? This is not okay. This is not an okay behavior. So in the end, we found a way to help this person become useful after all for the team, but it was very, very challenging. And in this particular semester, I would think that, unfortunately, half of my teaching load was probably just taking care of this one person. Later, I found out from other faculty that they were difficult in other classes also. So it wasn't really me or the class. It was just personal issue. Even though this person took a lot of my time, ordinarily, this class is the easiest to teach because I don't need to prepare anything. I have no preparation. Some grading afterwards, but no preparation. On the other hand, you also have to be ready to face anything. You walk in a classroom and you don't know what fresh hell awaits you that morning in terms of conflicts. But as I said, it's only experienced as conflict while you're in it. Afterwards, you're laughing it off and everyone is usually happy that it happened this way. So that's why I'm saying it's like a rewarding class to teach. It's kind of tough. I imagine you probably have busy office hours as well oh, with, yeah. with project-based <laughs> so, learning. So much my faculty website says office hours by appointment only. In reality, it means if I'm in, I'll probably have time for you. Because with classes like these, problems emerge right then and there. And I don't mean interpersonal problems. I mean, oh, snap, we really need to use this one server, but the server just went down. What do we do now? Or we're using this Google API and Google did what Google loves to do, namely change their API. What do we do now? Or not too long ago, we were developing Facebook integration and Facebook from one day to the next took away the ability to post across pages on Facebook. So the project was kind of dead in the water. What do you do now? And that's a problem that emerges immediately and you have to fix it somehow. And students can't fix it. When the resources that they need vanish, they can't help themselves. There's no way they can recover on their own. So that's when after a short brief moment of panic, where I panic myself, we have to fix it somehow.
and you become the magic wand. Well, <laughs> <laughs> or at least that's what my students think when they're standing in line for project-based learning. It's like they come in and it's like, please, I can't move forward. Those are all realistic yeah. problems that they will be facing. Yeah. It, is, it happens all the time. It happens to companies all the time. If you're in the reality of the situation is Facebook doesn't just take this away. Neither does Google. Google, as opposed to, for example, Oracle, they don't really change their Java API all that much. And if they do, they have support for the things that you used to use. Mm -hmm. They call it deprecated. Google just switches it off. But they don't do it from one day to the next. There's usually a period where they tell you, hey, by the way, in a year or so, we're going to switch over this and that service. So technically, as a student, you could be prepared if you did enough research. But realistically, they have to complete this project in our semesters are 15 weeks long. They have to complete this in 15 weeks. So you have to make some concessions. And then we'll just redefine the scope. We just focus on something else. For example, a little while ago, Google took away the opportunity of making your own Google map. Um, when I say that, it's not a Google map of, let's say, I don't know, Oswego, New York. Using the Google map engine, make a map of your bedroom. That's what I meant. So they took away that opportunity or they took away certain functionalities that we wanted in one of our robot projects. And I said, well, they can't do that. So what are you going to do instead? One student suggested, hey, can we use the Unity engine to model a room that robot moves in? I said, sure. Unity is a game engine to make video games. And I said, okay, sure, you can do that. But I don't know Unity very well. Actually, I don't know it at all. So we have people here on campus who do know this, but I'm having a feeling to become good enough at Unity to make this project work will take another semester in and of itself. So why don't you do it the easy way? Take a picture of the room that you want to use and then rasterize it and just fake it till you make it. So in the end, the project was successful despite Google's API being on. What are some examples of specific topics that you used in the design class? So in the software design process class, the first time I taught it here in Oswego, we did a family tree website, like those find your ancestry websites that you can find on the internet. And mainly because my dad, he now passed away, but my dad was really into that. And he wanted a website just to show our own family's family tree. So we did that, which was marginally successful. It was a decent family tree. Some of the features that we initially shot for were not delivered, but you know, we can safely say it was a family tree. The year after that, we did an automated clicker system. And I know that John here is very much a proponent of using clickers in classrooms. If you have seen that millionaire quiz show on TV, they have little devices and you can basically poll the audience in the classroom or in a quiz show for multiple choice type answers. So we implemented, and I'm of the firm opinion that no student should have to pay money for anything because tuition is already high enough. So we implemented a free one. And that was using students' own cell phones and wireless network they could poll. You and had some classes actually use it as clients. If that's, I that's right. So I used it in my own introduction to programming class. I used it that semester. I used them as guinea pigs and they were excited beyond belief. They kind of liked it. It was very buggy, of course, mainly because doing it over wireless is a really bad protocol. Plus, if you have a wireless network in a large lecture hall, it is an even worse protocol. So there were some problems with it that we couldn't just solve. They were just unsolvable to us. But in principle, in a small enough audience, let's say inside of 20 students, it worked great. Last semester was particularly exciting due to a scheduling error by, I'm not going to say whom, but let's say by certain administrative forces. I unfortunately and accidentally had twice as many students in this class as I was supposed to. Like I like to teach this class with like between 15 and let's say 25 because we have a lot of students. Sometimes we have to unfortunately have 30 students in this class. Last semester I had 50. So... Oops. 
Yeah, that was awful. <laughs> but I decided after I talked to our department head, Doug Lee, and he says, well, what are you going to do? You want to pick out people and kick them out? And we decided that this is a really evil thing to do to students. So we just bit in the sour apple and said, okay, fine, let's do a red team, blue team approach where we had the same project and we split the class in half saying, you're team blue, you're choosing a different design solution than team red. And they both implemented a Scrabble clone. Those of you who have played Scrabble board game, and we can use words and play words. And the idea is that people would walk by a kiosk system, which is actually running right now in the entrance of our science building here. There's a computer in a display case, and it's running a cloned version of Scrabble. And people can walk by with their cell phones, connect to a little wireless that is emitted, and then they get a hand dealt on their cell phone, and then they can play words. And of course, you have the usual problems, like the first person that walks by plays an unspeakable word. So we made it Oswego themed and say, if you play certain words, you would get bonuses and such things. As I just mentioned, in the coming semester, I'm going to teach this class for the first time, mainly online. And I'm thinking about doing a productivity type software, something like that connects to your email account and looks at what your emails are actually about. How much time do you spend in your emails? How much time do you waste? For me as faculty, I always feel like I'm doing 5% teaching, 3% research, and 97 million percent of miscellaneous administrative stuff. Mostly so email. <laughs> most, mostly probably emails. So I want to know if that's true. I want to see what do my emails say I am communicating about the most. On the one hand, you have to connect to Google's IMAP account and download emails, and then you'd have to do some natural language processing to part your speech in the email and so on. Of course, there are going to be privacy issues with this. These days, everyone is really concerned about privacy, as they should. So we're going to have a little team that is going to be specifically concerned with making sure that we abide by ISO 27000 privacy regulations, unless the students have a better idea, of course. <laughs> So our last question is, yeah. what are you going to do next? I'm really excited. I had a student I was successful in obtaining funding for a student project over the summer. And this student built an indoor GPS navigation system for robots. Now, when I say that, I mean mainly the API. So from this grant money, we bought a little ultrasonic location beacons, you could say, which can be distributed around a room. And the robot gets another location beacon slapped on top of itself. And then the robot knows in relationship to all the other beacons where it is. And using this little system, he implemented a GPS type API that allows us to say, robot, go exactly there. And the robot will drive up to two centimeters precise to that position. The robot has obstacle avoidance, it has pathfinding capabilities and all that stuff. So one of the things that I want to do next is have a fleet of those robots. We have several of those robots, but only one of them is location aware right now. I'm going to put location awareness on several other robots and then simulate, let's say, exoplanet exploration using those little things. Let's say you have three or four or five or 20 of those robots roaming around in a large room and one of them finds an obstacle and says, hey guys, here's an obstacle, don't run into it. Tells all the other robots where that obstacle is. And then the next time when the next robot comes around to a similar location and says, oh, here's an obstacle, here's the question. Is it the same obstacle? Because if it is, then we don't have to put two obstacles on the conceptual map. We have to do just one. So that's something I want to do. It also ties into, into my research. Like one of the things that I'm really, really focusing on is to make sure that the students just don't do boring little projects that every student in computer science has implemented a library system or an ATM, you know, boring, been done before. 
I work, as I said earlier, in cyber physical systems and safety critical requirements and such things. So I use those ideas in my classes and I want them to solve tiny little projects therein. As I mentioned earlier, we bought these programmable slot cars. So what I want to do next is do obstacle avoidance and automatic cruise controls with those slot cars and just automotive type software engineering projects. That's what's happening. I'm really excited about that too. Great. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed being here. You're doing some really interesting things there. I'm not doing any of them. The students, <laughs> the students are doing them. I'm just there for the ride, really. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teafortteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.